little knew how near he was to that now. I had not yet shared with him my suspicion that I may be carrying his child. After all, we would be wed within weeks, and there would be time enough to tell him then. And I did not want to suffer the extra pressure that he would certainly impose on me to move the wedding date forward. Let me make it clear. It wasn't that I didn't love Jack. Friends nudged me and whispered that any girl would jump at the chance. Sighing over his good looks, the fair hair and high cheekbones of the lowland Scot, very different indeed to the black-haired, blue-eyed Celtic warrior, my first husband, Danny McQuinn. I was afraid. Afraid still of that dream in which a door opened and Danny, whose death I firmly refused to acknowledge, walked in with a perfectly simple and completely logical explanation of where he had been for the past three years since the day he walked out of our home in Tucson, Arizona, never to return. I told myself that I could never ever love any man as much as I had loved Danny. The dream persisted and became an obsession, as well as providing an excellent excuse for not getting married a second time. A more truthful reason was that I enjoyed my new life following in the footsteps of my illustrious father, Chief Inspector Jeremy Faro and ignoring the occasional grim look in Jack's eye, which clearly indicated that once we were married, he would soon put an end to that nonsense. Not because he feared rivalry of a wife in the same profession, unofficially, but because he loved me and feared for my life. On two memorable occasions, he had saved me from death at the hands of a killer who I had unmasked. Perhaps he felt that twice was more than enough, and wasn't prepared to let my lucky escapes go to my head, feeling, with good reason, that he could not always guarantee to be around at the crucial moment. And so, the wedding plans began with a long-promised visit to Jack's parents, who farmed just over the border, a visit I had evaded for two reasons. The village had remote associations with Danny. He used to visit one of his relatives, a priest, who had brought him over from Ireland as a child in the late forties. Good sense told me that was a mere excuse, and that there was little chance of Father McQuinn still being alive. The real reason was that any visit to Jack's parents meant that they would hear wedding bells for their one and only bairn. Two years without a formal engagement, neither fiancé nor wife, and the revelation that we were lovers would be extremely embarrassing for devoted parents. The McMary farm was in Eildon, and constructed, like most of the village, from stones from the ruined abbey, a beauty spot popular with lovers and families on summer picnics. Eildon's days of glory had ended some six hundred years ago, when King Henry VIII, who was as enthusiastic about matrimony as I was to avoid it, decided how he would deal with the Pope's refusal to permit him the luxury of bigamy. He had responded to excommunication by chopping off a few heads and rewriting the rules. These included destroying the abbeys and transferring their wealth, which was considerable, into the royal purse. May Blossom had become the buds of June, and I sat in the garden with Thane, my deerhound, who had temporarily abandoned the yellow gorse to pretend to be a domestic pet. He spent a lot more time with Jack and me of late, and stroking his head, I wondered if it was only trust or because he was getting old. Where did he live on Arthur's seat? I had long since given up trying to solve the mystery of his origins. 
how he existed and looked so well cared for, and why there was a deep bond, a strange telepathy between us, where he often seemed to read my mind or understand when I was in danger. I was happy that morning. Weddings were still far off, and the sun was warm on my arms. To a blackbird serenade above our heads, I opened the newspaper Jack had left with me that morning. It promised to be dull reading. The main item, as usual, was Jubilee fever. It spread infecting Edinburgh and its environs with a daily outcrop of summer fets and fairs. There was one just a short distance away, within walking distance or a bicycle ride from where I lived in Solomon's Tower, at the base of Arthur's seat. The sisters at St. Anthony's Convent were today having a modest charity fair in aid of their orphans. My interest was immediate. The sisters were a teaching order of nuns. And Danny McQuinn had been one of the...